0: This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
1: You are listening to The Feed. Thank you for that. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the LNHL is coming to Markham, Canada's rudest city, and cracking down on stunt driving. But first... In case of emergency, what would you do if you were suddenly forced from your home with little time to spare? A fire, a gas leak, a tornado, a major power outage, flooding, a toxic spill, a train derailment, a construction accident. We've all watched in horror as fellow Canadians have had to flee dangerous wildfires in so many parts of this country lately. But what if this was you? Would you know what to do? Are you prepared in case of emergency? Uh, joining us now is Chris Alsop, Manager of Operations GTA Emergency Management for the Canadian Red Cross. Welcome to the show, Chris. I'm so glad that you're giving us your time.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: You know, we're watching on television and hearing on radio and, and online what's going on in, in various parts of our nation. The wildfires forcing people to flee for their lives. Do Canadians realize that there are dangers surrounding us that we need to be prepared to to tackle should they happen?
2: Yeah, disasters can happen at any time and anywhere. And the three things that we really try to make sure people know if they are affected by a disaster is to know the risks, make a plan, and build a kit.
1: So let's start with know the risks. Let's say we're in the GTA and we think, oh, we're safe from just about everything. What are the risks in an area, an urban setting, and and smaller cities that are in the GTA?
2: There's actually a lot of risks that could be out there, and they do vary from region to region and even city to city. So you have a train track nearby. Is there potential for a train derailment? Is there potential for gas leaks? These are the things that you need to know about your area, about where you live, Do you live on a floodplain? Is that a potential risk? So really learning more about your area, empowering yourself with the knowledge of what could go wrong, and that helps you to prepare for how you can move on to the next part, which is you're making a plan.
1: And let's talk about making an emergency plan. How do you do it and who do you do it with?
2: So it's most important to do it with your family and your close friends that you may be working with to support. You want to much like, Fire Department often tells you to make a plan to escape your house in the event of a fire. That is, of course, first priority, making sure you get out. But now expand that a little bit more. And do you have a plan to get out of your neighborhood? If there was, say, a gas leak and you needed to evacuate, Are there most neighborhoods would have multiple roads, so just knowing where they are. Making the plan where you would all potentially meet, because if a disaster happens in the middle of the day when people are at work, kids are at school, people may be separated so making a plan where everyone can gather after so that you know where they are and also informing those that if you cannot make it there how to contact you in the event that you are not able to make it to that point so for example we often recommend if you are having to evacuate have a contact in a city outside of your normal living area that you can call or email to tell them that you've gone here and you're safe and then if you are not able to make it make contact with your family you can at least all connect there.
1: So how do you put this together without frightening your family? That's a really good question. And it's more just
2: having a discussion. Um, there should not be nothing frightening about it. What is more frightening is when you have a disaster happen and you don't have a plan, that's where I think things really gets scary. But if you sit down with your family, with your friends and really think about it, uh, if you have young kids, maybe turn it into a little bit of a game. Um, Engage them with it. They may have a lot of fun with that. And if not, just sit down and say, okay, what is it we need to have? What is it we need to bring? Where is it we're going to go? And just map it out.
1: And can we include a very important part of many families, and that would be our pets? How do we organize an emergency plan for them?
2: And that's a great question. When you have pets, these are, of course, additional things you want to take into account. So as you're making your plan for your immediate family, making plans for your pets, is important. Making plans for uh, if you have seniors or relatives or neighbors who may also struggle, maybe making a plan to include them. If you are evacuating, you have somebody who is less mobile who you can take with you. If you're evacuating your neighborhood, uh, if you have children, making sure that you have everything you need for them. If you have pets, you have the dog food, cat food, whatever it is you need. The stress is. going can be stressful for people, but it can also be stressful for pets. So. For young kids, having their favorite toy along with them, make sure that comes on, staying with Pat.
1: So that leads me to the third part of this interview, and that is getting an emergency kit together. So what would be the components of an emergency kit? And where would you put it so that, you had what you needed should there be a, a problem. I mean, you, you could be spread out. Your kids could be at school. As you say, you might be at work. Uh, there's a, a, a pet at home. So where, how do you put the kit together? What's in it and where do you put it?
2: So you definitely want to have an emergency kit. Now, some people will just go and buy one. They don't have to worry about it, but we often recommend building your own. The reason for that is it allows you to see everything that's in it, understand what you would use it for. Things you'd want to have though in your kit includes like bottles of water, non-perishable food. If you have canned food, perhaps maybe like a can opener, um, copy of your emergency plan, flashlights, and not just flashlights It's one thing to have a flashlight, but it's another thing to make sure you have batteries for it. Uh, Think about if you had a blackout or if it's nighttime and you need to evacuate, nothing worse than having a flashlight that's just not working. So things like that, this is where you want to prepare for that. Um, Where you want to put that kit, we would often recommend like a grab-and-go kit and maybe have it near the front door or somewhere accessible that everyone in the family knows where it is. Um, as you go into the winter season, though, of course, we do also recommend maybe it's good to have like a kit for your car. That would be maybe a little bit more focused on what you need in case you got stuck driving somewhere and maybe went into a ditch in the middle of a major winter storm. So you might want to have multiple kits. It all comes down, of course, to building what is the right tool for what you need. So the grab-and-go kit, though, is if in the event of a major evacuation, you need to leave your house. The basics of what you need, uh, additional uh, additional things like include like a first aid kit, uh, some cash, um, just in case uh, there is no power, you can at least purchase things that way. As we mentioned earlier on, pet food, pet medication, medication for people. These are the things you want to take into account.
1: And is it important to also think about if you happen to be at home and it's and you've got to go, you you're, you have to you're you're being evacuated, to have your proper identification, uh, your cell phone charged. I mean, we always think like to think that that's going to be the case, but it isn't always. Uh, do, are those important components of the emergency kit?
2: Absolutely, having a spare charger for your phone, whether it's having it in your car, having it in your kits.
1: How do you suggest that we remain calm through an emergency?
2: Part of being remaining calm is being prepared ahead for it. You'll find that the more you spend the time to prepare for a potential emergency, whatever that emergency may be, the better off you'll be in actually evacuating and being prepared for that.
1: And tell me about your work as Manager of Operations, GTA, Emergency Management for the Canadian Red Cross. What does your work entail?
2: So as the uh, Manager for, in Emergency Management at the Red Cross, what I do here is I support our team of volunteers throughout the greater Toronto area. We have an amazing team who are trained up to support those who have been in, displaced by disasters. We work with um, local municipalities to help them. We work with the... With the individuals who've been affected by everything from a house fire right up to evacuation. So our volunteers will go assist them, find how we can help them, what is it they need. We can make referrals to other organizations that may be able to support. So my job is to help manage the teams that all support all of that.
1: And just before we let you go, can we just review what are the most common hazards that can affect Canadians?
2: Yeah. Weather obviously is a big one. Whether it is the spring and summer, you get severe storms. Those are the ones that often get the most attention. But you look into the wintertime, you'll get a lot of winter storms, whether it's uh, snowstorms, blizzards, high winds, uh, ice storms. Those are things that all can cause power outages. Um, any disaster such as train derailments, gas leaks, those can all have a negative effect on your community and causing you evacuation. So there's lots of things that can be out there. What I often recommend is reaching out to your local municipality. They often have emergency plans and are more than happy to inform you of some of the risks
0: that are available in your area.
1: Chris, where can people go to get more information on on being prepared for just about anything?
2: You can go to redcross.ca forward slash ready. You'll find a lot of material and information on how you and your family can be better prepared to work through a disaster.
1: Chris Alsop, Manager of Operations, GTA, Emergency Management for the Canadian Red Cross. Thank you so much for this terrific information.
2: Thank you so much, Anne.
1: For those planning outdoor work, Kevin Frankish now with three tips to stay safe.
0: We tend to think about power line safety as something for specially trained technicians to worry about. After all, power lines are all the way up there. We're all the way down here. However, a new survey not only reveals that we have a lot to learn about power line safety, we need to learn it. Bianca Texera is from Hydro One, joins me right now, hopefully to enlighten us. See what I did there? <laughs> Sorry, Bianca. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> um, it, it, this, is, uh, this is interesting to, uh, because, you know, we, we only think of, of power lines affecting us if there's a storm and we happen to see a downed wire, but there's a lot more to it than that.
3: Yeah, that's actually that's so correct, Kevin. Um, we conducted a new survey at Hydro One, and we recently found that a huge portion of Ontarians don't know how to stay safe um, when it comes to power lines, and we just want to remind people that when you're outside working on things, look up, look down, and look underground before doing anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, you should see me with an extendable ladder, Bianca. I, I'm like a YouTube video, okay, of what not to do. And those ladders reach up to the level that power lines are at. And you're swinging them around and you're doing it by yourself when you should be using two people, but you're still doing it by yourself. It, it It's something we don't think about, but it's very possible that we could we could knock into a power line.
3: Absolutely. And you're giving me goosebumps with the way that you're describing swinging (laughs) around that ladder. (laughs) Yeah, we just people need to be aware that power lines are a lot closer than they think they are. And they have the potential to do a lot more damage than we usually think as well.
0: And so if we're going up to clean the eaves or hang Christmas lights, a a lot of times power, you know, it depends on how your house, you know, when it was built. But there's a lot of times power lines come from overhead right into your house, right Beside, in fact, lower than your eavesdrop.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So before you're going to do anything like that, take a quick glance at your power lines and where they lie and think about what you need to do. I, I know we also think, too, that it's the bigger jobs that are going to be um, more coming into contact with that kind of stuff. You know, digging for a deck, digging for a pool. But exactly as you say, cleaning an eavesdrop, putting up Christmas lights, trimming a tree. Um, power lines can be right there, right in your line of sight, close enough to touch And so uh, safety is always first at Hydro One. And we want to make sure that people are staying at least three meters back from any overhead line.
0: You know, it's something interesting that I learned because I used to work on, on live eyes all the time and we had to take courses on it, that if our mast came in touch with a power line or a power line was knocked down, I never knew this. But not only can the ground be, you know, charged or electrified, but it it goes, it goes out in circles. It's really tough to explain unless, unless, you know, you sort of show it in pictures, but the way you walk or, or act around downed power lines is so important.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right again. And downed power lines, especially like I said before, you know, three meters back from overhead lines, downed power lines, at least 10 meters. Um, So Hydro One right now has a public safety campaign called Mind the Lines, and it was created with visuals to make sure that people can have a nice, easy way to really understand how far back they need to stay safe. So three meters for us Canadians, three beavers. (laughs) If you can picture a beaver, (laughs) at least three of those back. The down power lines, 10 meters, and that's about one meter, we say is about one big dog. So 10 dogs back or three school buses, if that helps the visual any better.
0: Yeah. And one of the reasons you say 10 meters and, and people may not, well, so what? Who cares? If if you step, um, your feet are spread apart and, and one happens to be closer to the down power line, that could be extremely dangerous, and and you need to know that's why Hydro One isn't just being, you know, sensationalistic. They, they, they're saying no, stay back from the lines. There's a lot more happening there than you know. And I'm I'm looking as soon as you mentioned that I I, I uh, googled Hydro One mind the lines, and there's some great information here for people. Uh You got the beaver in there. I like that. <laughs> and one hey, of
3: the Canadians.
0: one of the things you talk about too is and we hear this all the time call before you dig or click before you dig and again we tend to think oh this is only for contractors or something like that you y- you don't know what's buried in your backyard you, you 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 may be surprised what's actually buried back there
3: absolutely so i did mention you know we, we tend to think it's the bigger projects that you need to call or click before you dig the decks and the pools. But honestly, it can be something as small as wanting to plant a new garden, wanting to put down a new tree. And in our survey that we did, almost half of Ontarians had no idea that they needed to call to do a locate to see if there's any important infrastructure underground.
0: And uh, with that, I guess a lot of people don't realize it's a free service.
3: It is a free service. Absolutely. For homeowners, they can they can call. They can go to the website and request one. Um, we'll get into your schedule and we'll be there to make sure that you can get on with your outdoor projects.
0: And here's something else, too. I mean, you may hire a contractor. You you don't know how responsible they are. Um, it, it, it doesn't hurt to just say to them, have you called to make sure there's nothing buried back there? And it's not just power lines. It could be water lines, it could be natural gas lines. Uh, so just double-check with your contractor that before they start digging for that pool or, or whatever, that they've called as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's also not a bad idea if you're moving into a new home to get that kind of stuff done as mm. soon as possible, get it out of the way so that moving forward, you know, you're, maybe you're not doing all those big projects as soon as you move in, but down the line a few years later, if you're going to want to put in a garden, put in a whole new bunch of trees, um, to already know where all these things land in your property.
0: Well, my dream is to put in an Olympic-sized swimming pool maybe one day, so (laughs) I can plan ahead.
3: Yeah, get that locate done (laughs) now, Kevin.
0: (laughs) It's all incredibly good food for thought. Uh, and before you griswold your Christmas lights, you're going to want to, you're going to just want to go over this. And so you just go to Hydro One. I found the best way is just to Google Hydro One, mind the lines. That, that was the easiest way to, uh, for me to get to that. There's great information there, some do's, some don'ts, and, and it looks like it's done in a really understandable way, Bianca.
3: Yeah, as I said, our, our visuals, you know, it's to give you a nice, easy way to remember how to stay far back. A lot of people have dogs. You can picture a big dog. Don't think about a chihuahua, think about a golden retriever. Ten of those back from any downed lines you might mm-hmm. come across.
0: And tell your kids, you never know Absolutely. when they're going to come across something uh, on their way to school or something like that.
3: Yeah, and you know, when we were talking about the overhead lines saying, you know, trimming your tree, cleaning your eaves trough, just as easy to come in contact with when you know a child flying a drone.
0: Yes, yeah. All right, thank you. You
3: used to be flying a kite. Now I know. Ha- what has happened to
0: us? Still still be careful I flying seen your a kites. Kite in years. Yeah, be careful flying your <laughs> kites too, folks. Benjamin Franklin found out the hard way. All right. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Kevin.
0: Bianca Tech Sarah is from Hydro 1 and speaking to us about mind the lines.
1: Our Glenn Perkins is next with YRP's efforts to curtail aggressive driving.
4: We have all seen them, those motorists with a lead foot, weaving in and out of traffic, driving in excess of the posted speed limit. In an attempt to get aggressive and speeding drivers off the road, York Regional Police is turning to Project Erase. Constable Laura Nicole explains how the program works.
5: Project Erase runs essentially consistently, but we do ramp it up when the spring hits. So every year, kind of as the snow starts to clear, we see more and more modified vehicles out on the streets and more and more unsafe driving behaviours. So we partner with uh, all the police services across Ontario to essentially take a sort of unified and aggressive stance against it with uh, an education piece. Usually we do a press conference uh, hosted by a different service each time and that kind of kicks off our more uh, elaborate efforts. So we we do quite a bit. We kind of pay attention to where there's going to be different gatherings and meetings car shows and that type of thing, just to make sure that everybody is following uh, the laws. And we also put out things proactively to encourage our community to call us if they do see any really unsafe driving behaviours on our roads.
4: Has there been an increase in street racing and stunt driving, or is it just the case of more drivers are being caught?
5: it does seem like it's a steady increase. Um, so, you know, it could be both, right? We are really aggressive in our efforts to actually try to stop these behaviors, but they have to be occurring for us to stop it. So, um, we have seen over the years definitely a big increase in the, in the number of, um, you know, modified cars out there that, that are not law-abiding, essentially. Um, and we do see a lot of organized gatherings. There was a lot of different areas that were being used quite a bit for vehicles to sort of meet up and, and conduct organized races. And These were pretty elaborate setups. I know in, you know, the past we've put up videos showing this from, you know, our Air 2 helicopter. Uh, We've seen setups where, you know, they've got a huge group of people who are watching and videotaping and um, the races are very organized. They actually close off the streets illegally and and they conduct these races. So there's things as extreme as that. And then you have, you know, the other side where it's a bit more frequent and a little less specific where you just have those really, really high rates of speed where it does fall on under stunt driving. So if you're going more than 50 kilometers over the posted limit, that falls under the stunt driving charges. So it's kind of a wide range of things that are all happening that all fit under this uh, the Project Erase kind of umbrella. So it's a lot for our officers to work through and uh, it, it's a huge problem and definitely puts our citizens at risk when they're out on the roads.
4: York Regional Police recently released two videos on YouTube that we put on the 105.9 The Region Twitter feed and I guess they show the two spectrums. One was video of two cars racing and another was just a, a young man who happened to be in his father's car who I guess wanted to test to see how fast it could go.
5: Exactly. So that does sort of speak to the fact that, you know, more than one thing is happening in in these cases. They're both very, very concerning. When you have vehicles driving at those kinds of speeds, it's really unsafe. Something terrible can happen so quickly. And obviously, it's something that we don't tolerate, and we continue to be very proactive in dealing with it. So we we really hope that our citizens want to partner with us and, and call and report things that they see that could be putting other people at risk.
4: Well, there's the life factor, the accident they can be fatal at those speeds but there's Mm -hmm. also the outcome what happens to someone who is arrested who's charged with stunt driving what's the process
5: so, if an officer stops somebody for any of the types of offenses that fall under the uh, the stunt driving laws, they'll immediately have their license suspended for 30 days, and their car will be towed and impounded for 14 days. And that's in addition to the, the charges that'll be laid against them that they'll have to deal with, whether in court or by um, you know navigating the fines. So it's pretty significant. Especially you know what we what we see a lot of the times is the most difficult part for people is that no license for 30 days and their their car being taken away. So, you know, it's, I don't see how on earth it could be worth it. Um, when you know the officers are out there watching for this and, and monitoring for this, we have a helicopter. The odds of being caught are very high if you're engaging in a behaviour like this. And um, I would say the consequences would just not be something anybody would want to want to have to deal with.
4: Is there a certain demographic? Uh,
5: unfortunately, it's pretty wide. Like, you know, we've we've had charges from, um, you know, all kinds of ages. I think we often think of this as being, you know, younger people. Um, but I've definitely seen um, much older people charged with these types of crimes. Again, you think sort of more the younger males, but definitely we've had a very, very wide range. Uh, so, you know, it, it, depending on what it is. So, um, you know, we've seen just about everything. Um, and so it does become a problem and, and something that we do want to remind people of regardless. It, it, it can happen if, if you're driving and, you know, you're in a rush and you think you're late. Well, it's never okay to climb to those kinds of unsafe speeds and you're going to be much much later obviously if, if you are being stopped and your car is taken so you know stop and think about it slow down and be safe
4: constable lauren nicole with your Regional police thank you for joining us on the feed
1: thanks for having me coming up next on the feed markham at center ice
0: do you have a story idea for the feed Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The LNHL tournament may be coming to Markham next March, but as the mayor tells our Jim Lang, planning is already underway.
6: Well, York Region has seen many great sporting events and festivals and tournaments over the years, but this is going to be something really cool. In March break of 2024, the city of Markham, along with Destination Markham Corporation, has been hand-selected to be the Little Native Hockey League host city. It's going to be awesome to join me to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by Mayor Frank Scarpetti. F- Frank, I-, I think this is a wonderful coup for the city of Markham in New York Region.
7: It is. I'm very proud of our our staff at at the City of Markham. I mean, when you consider uh, the RFP for this was just released on June 9th uh, of this year, and we had a quick turnaround, and, uh, you know, they made their announcement by the end of July. It's quite a a whirlwind process, but we couldn't be prouder. Uh, We're very excited to be able to to host the Little Native uh, Hockey League tournament cultural festival and gala celebration because it is their 50th anniversary next year and when you consider we were up against uh you know some some uh good competition with with ottawa and and london and mississauga so the fact that that we actually landed this uh uh, again kudos to our staff uh, also to destination markham that stepped up to the plate with uh, financial support and, and the city as well Uh, supporting this. When you bring all of those ingredients together, uh, we were the successful bidder.
6: Frank, one thing I think you have going for you in Markham is just a multitude of really high-end quality rinks. I've played tournaments at the Angus Glen Community Center, uh, played at other rinks in Markham. You have 10 different rinks you can utilize for the tournament, which makes it really easy for the organizers to spread around the games and keep things reasonable. It is, yeah, and and I think, uh, you know, you've mentioned some of the newer
7: facilities. Uh, The other thing that that we've done systematically is always reinvested in our older facilities as well like crosby arena and thornhill community center like we we've uh, we keep reinvesting to keep these these facilities in, in tip-top shape and, and we get comments coming from people coming from other communities saying geez uh that i know that's an older facility but it still looks pretty good and it's because we we make that, that effort. You know, this is this is a huge undertaking. We're going to have over 3,500 young Indigenous hockey players coming to our community. And one of the things I'm really pleased to see is, is both the mix of boys and girls teams. There'll be about 200 plus teams that'll be participating. And when you consider that, you know, most of those hockey players are coming with one or two or sometimes more family members to come and watch uh, during the March break, we could have up towards 10,000 people uh, descending onto uh, the city of Markham and the surrounding area.
6: Speaking with Frank Serpetti, the mayor of the city of Markham for the 50th anniversary celebrations of the little native hockey league tournament taking place March break of next year in 2024. And you start looking down the list of alumni who played in this tournament, gone on to the NHL, Chris Simon, Jonathan Chichu, Brandon Montour, Jordan Nolan. There's a lot of great young players who end up going on to the show from this tournament.
7: Uh, Absolutely. I think they've all provided uh, inspiration for these young Indigenous hockey players, uh, a recognition that, uh, you know, they they can make it there too. And uh, I don't think, quite honestly, they could be coming... To, to a better community in, in Markham when it comes to hockey. I mean, we've got a long tradition of, of hockey here in this community. A number of uh, players have, have, from this community have also made it to the NHL. We've, uh, uh, again, made sure that girls uh, in our community have access to facilities. We embrace the, uh, the Women in Sport uh, initiative to provide equal access, so we have... Uh, you know, a thriving girls uh, hockey league. We also had uh, uh, one of the Canadian women's hockey league teams here in Markham Thunder. So we, we've got a long hockey history here and, and certainly a hockey community that's alive and well and, and thriving. And I'll tell you, this is a, this is really, I think, a wonderful shot in the arm on so many different levels, Jim. Um, you know, Markham has had a, a, a partnership with the First Nations since 2015 we've supported them it's been a great uh, experience for us as well and one of the things uh, again th- that connection of hockey one of the things uh, when, when our community had a sports uh, equipment drive for hockey equipment uh, we sent a bunch of equipment up to Yabitum and for the first time in many years Yabitum was able to actually field a girls hockey team and to hear one of the female elders, uh, I was personally in the room, speak about the change they had seen in the young girls because they were playing hockey. Uh, you know, th- this just it's just right for them to come here to be celebrating their 50th anniversary. And, and we're going to welcome them and, and make this a, a memorable occasion, a memorable experience for all their players and their families.
6: Well, it's also a cultural festival, Frank, and I think you and your staff should be applauded. You haven't just talked about it; you've put your money where your mouth is to support the Indigenous communities and the history of the Indigenous communities in Markham, Unionville. and to me, this is just an extension of what you and your staff have worked so hard at in the last decade. Well, when you when you consider, and,
7: and we don't have a large Indigenous community here in Markham. Uh, but we've made certainly uh, a number of efforts uh, as an organization, first and foremost, to give uh, our staff training. Uh, we have also have uh, tangible evidence of of the Indigenous uh, communities with the Ani Community Centre, which means welcome in Ojibwe. Uh, we have sculptures outside the Ani Community Centre that... Uh, uh, emphasize the seven uh, teachings, grandfather teachings. So a lot of tangible evidence, and certainly a lot of initiatives that uh, we we incorporate in our everyday life here. And I, quite honestly, I think that came across with our bid, and um, and I think they're going to feel very much, uh, as I said, very much welcome here. And our, our intent here. Look, at, this is a obviously hockey is pretty focused when you're on one of the teams and. You're engaged in the games and the tournament. But we want to make this a community celebration. We want this to be something that all of Markham can participate in and support. So it won't be just a a tournament coming in and going out and and, and not engaging the local community. Much like we've celebrated the torch runs for the Olympic Winter Games, much like we had uh, hometown hockey come to the city of Markham, a few years ago,
6: we're going to make sure that we engage the, certainly the hockey community here and certainly our, our cultural communities as well. And you know, the thing is too, frankly, that there's a big part of it from my perspective is driving around Markham over the last few years and seeing the growth, the infrastructure, the, the restaurants at all different levels and price points, the different kinds of hotels, it's sort of set up that it is a city. The Markham is a city and it's set up to host this kind of event.
7: You know there's many obviously there's diversity uh, throughout throughout Canada, but the, you know you've, you've hit on a great point. Where else could you go in Canada and and truly get the broad strokes and and, and the variety of culinary uh, experiences? So they're going to come here, be able to taste the South Asian, Asian uh, traditional foods uh, and and everything in between. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is a, real, it's a real boost uh, as well. I, I said this is a plus on so many different levels. I mean, it, it's estimated that the economic impact of this tournament in total is close to $10 million. So that's obviously uh, a boost for our hotels. They, they need 6,000 hotel rooms. So that means not just Markham, but actually some of the surrounding communities mm-hmm. are going to benefit from us hosting this. And then, obviously, the restaurants and, and some of the uh, the other experiences that the kids can enjoy that we're also known for.
6: And, the, and the, I find this when I think about it, um, you know, when some people criticize the whole concept of the Pan Am Center and the Pan Am Games, and now it's this world-class facility that's used by everyone, and all the criticism's long forgotten. And so what people are going, well, why is Markham doing this? Well, then once this thing is hosted and everyone gets the feedback, they go, geez, I'm glad Markham did this. Yeah, well, it, again...
7: Uh, The Pan Am has given us the opportunity to really grow sports tourism. Uh, That's been an overall benefit. We've hosted countless uh, championships there on a world stage, the World Junior Badminton, the Butterfly Canada Cup, the Rhythmic Gymnastic Championships over several years. This uh, this past year, we've also hosted the, the World Artistic Swimming Championships and, and also the Badminton Challenge Cup. So it's given us the opportunity to attract these things. But the other big plus for us is that that the Pan Am Centre has allowed local athletes, not just in Markham, but across York Region, to come to that facility and and train, uh, hone their skills, and, and potentially one day represent Markham or their local community at the national or, or uh, international levels.
6: Well, this is an exciting time for everyone. And Markham going forward into 2024 and beyond. I am just so excited to see what's going to come next. But this is really cool. Coming up March break of 2024, the 50th anniversary of the Little Native Hockey League taking place at 10 rinks in Markham. Mayor Frank Scarpitti, as always, thank you for your time. And this is a great coup for Markham, New York Region. Congratulations. Thank you. And miigwech.
1: Next, how the Ontario Trillium Foundation grants are supporting community engagement and social inclusion.
8: Tina Cortez with that story. Gina Balseca Aguera is CEO of FLCS. Gina, first of all, congratulations to you and the Fuerza Latina Community Services Organization, the recipient last year and earlier this year of a grant from the Ontario Trillium Foundation. This must have been such welcome news.
9: Absolutely. We're thrilled to have a Paratrillion Foundation funding us a much needed grant for services online that we provide throughout the year.
8: Gina, for those who don't know, what is your organization all about?
9: Hueso Latina is a nonprofit organization committed to empower youth and their families by promoting well being through culture, support groups, and sports in Bonn and its surroundings. We are fully uh, providing services online at the moment, and we are excited to be able to offer this not only in Vaughan but throughout uh, everywhere we can reach out.
8: So how do these grants help your organization? What exactly do they do? Where does the money go?
9: So the Ontario Trillium Foundation significantly benefited our youth to pursue their careers and their dreams. To encourage uh, other youth to continue higher education, the grant played a pivotal role in supporting mostly Latinos with great. We're getting them job ready in this competitive market. As you know, um, there's, uh, after COVID, there was so much need for programs like this, and, and we are so grateful that we can provide this for our Latino community as well as anyone else that's interested in, in having this type of programs that would benefit them to find employment. Our program served as a platform for young individuals to flourish, acquire knowledge, and nurture their talent,
8: and help them achieve their goals at the end of the day. Why was this organization needed?
9: Well, we started in 2003, and uh, we moved to Vaughn, and there was um, a lot... It was a new city for us Uh, they didn't have much uh program so it was a perfect ideal for us to start something to offer to our youth in the community so we started with programs um, in sports and uh, we provided uh, weekly programs for 10 years and we saw the same youth grow up and through this program, we were able to talk to them and uh, advise them to pursue school, to continue their education that is vital to, and for them and their life. So we had a wonderful program. Uh, And we kept growing, and um, we felt it was really necessary because um, Latinos are underserved in the Bonn community, and so it was a perfect opportunity for us to uh, keep growing and providing different uh, programs. We also do the Bonn Latin Festival. um, We're having a fundraising gala, and it's just been rewarding throughout this year to be able to uh, celebrate 20 years serving Bonn.
8: Congratulations on that anniversary. Can you share with us maybe some stories or how your organization has made a difference for young people?
9: Well, with this program that was funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation has been extraordinary. Um, Some of the comments uh, that I want to share is, uh, for example, I think this program is excellent. I wish I could have more sessions very clear presentation and provide a helpful feedback staff is very supportive and always took time to give feedback on the resume and cover letter this is really going to help me in the long run um gabby did a great job by covering all aspects of job hiring that definitely will be helpful to me um that was just one program we also have the mentoring program which we had Extraordinary results as well with youth matched with, um, for example, if, um, if youth wanted to pursue to become a doctor, we matched them with the doctor so that they'd see, you know, um, all the ins and outs of their career and to see if it's possible. And they were thrilled that they were able to find some uh, Latino um examples, leaders in the community that could provide that kind of information and to say, hey, if I did it, you can do it. And it was really rewarding for them to be part of this program. And I was honored to, to see it all come together and um, with great staff as well.
8: Do you see some of those people who maybe graduated, and I use the air quotes there, from your programs, come back and also volunteer their time?
9: Oh, absolutely, yes, and we've been having uh, for two years and, and uh, you know, uh, having volunteers to come to the Bon Latin Festival and to other events that we do. Um, uh, we also have uh, placements from different uh, colleges and universities, and we have those kids take uh, as well our programs, and they find it really, really good, and then they pass along the word of mouth to other and they come together to volunteer as well as to take this program because they love it. They've heard wonderful things about it.
8: Why did you want to be part of this program?
9: It was one of my dreams to keep, you know, first we did sports and we did that for almost 10 years and tournaments and like three 500 people youth specifically with soccer and basketball And then we uh, provided services for the seniors for about six years. And the last year that we uh, gave them tablets, uh, cell phones, uh, computers, and we trained them so that through COVID, they were able to be in contact with others. So that was really something that will forever be in my heart. And then I thought, how else can we get those kids? You know, there are about 70% of youth going through a lot of um, mental health issues and, and getting back out there and trying to socialize. And with that, what better way than to get them first started to have online programs and then bring them to the Bon Festival and all the other face-to-face events that we have and then meet them and see how they flourish. And that, for me, is, is, is amazing. I'm very
8: proud to, to be able to do that. You have lots to be proud of, for sure. You mentioned Thank that you. you have a fundraising gala coming up this fall. What can you tell us about it?
9: Oh, it's going to be on October 14th. It's going to be an extraordinary, glamorous gala so that you can be feeling like you're a princess for one night and just enjoy and support our program. Uh, Funds will go directly towards our programs and uh, it's going to be sensational. We have an extraordinary um, opera and regular kind of music a band, as well as we have um, other entertainment, a four-course meal, just a beautiful night of um, awards. We have in, uh, Latin Excellence Awards at the same time where we're going to honor kids, youth that have graduated from university or college, and community leaders that have been uh, exemplary to others and um, we get about 30 40 people to uh, receive this award which is in partnership with the federal government so it's something that they can use as well for the references.
8: Oh, it sounds like so a fun night. It, so if our listeners want more information, where can they find it?
9: Well we are um, our website is www. dot www.fuerzalatinaservices.org And our Instagram, Fuerza Latina Canada. Our Facebook, Fuerza Latina Services. And our number is 647-404-7496.
8: That's terrific. Thank you for your time today.
9: It's been a great honour.
1: Thank you for giving us this time and opportunity. Have a great day. After the break, the York Region City coming out on top, but for all the wrong reasons.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed, York Region. We can pat ourselves on the back. We are at the top of the list in a recent Preply survey. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. Based on the results, do we say woohoo or boohoo? Markham, according to the poll, is the most polite city in Canada. But on the flip side, Vaughan is considered the rudest city from coast to coast to coast. How did we get there, and why? And joining us now to analyze the juicy details of the headline-making survey is Sylvia Johnson, head of methodology at Preply. Wow! So you're in Barcelona. We are here in York Region. Great to make the connection, Sylvia.
10: Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me on this show. I imagine it may have caused a little bit of controversy, given what you've just said.
1: Oh, yeah. Vaughn and Markham, each topping the list. And let's let's analyze this survey. What was the reason for the survey in the first place?
10: So, Preply is an online language learning marketplace. So, we essentially connect hundreds of thousands of students with thousands of tutors teaching over 50 languages. So we're really interested in all things related to language but also everything related to culture because obviously there is a strong relationship between language and culture. So we were really curious to find out how people perceive other people's behaviour and how this varies across countries. So we decided to conduct this survey to gain some insights into the topic. We'd also read um, some studies in the past that had shown that rudeness is on the rise, which slightly piqued our interest. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about what is considered polite and impolite behavior in society. And by that, I mean ways of behaving, speaking and living in accordance with the often unspoken rules of being on your best behavior.
1: (laughs) Well, you you interviewed, you surveyed over 1,500 Canadian residents across 44 cities to find out which is the rudest and also which is the most polite city. And it's incredible to think that two cities within the boundary of York Region surfaced to the top of the list. So let's start with the most polite, Markham. How did that come about?
10: So when you think about how we how we created this criteria for the rudest and most polite cities. So let me explain a little bit about how this, is, how this was actually run. So our score was based on a ranking system, and we asked participants, those 1,500 participants you mentioned earlier, to answer how often they witnessed 26 common disrespectful behaviours in the city they live in. So this, for example, might be walking around with your phone in public, but not looking up, not looking down, bumping into people, etc. And so when we looked at the criteria and when we made the rankings, when we looked at this average rudeness score, then Vaughan was pushed to the top of, uh, sorry, Markham was pushed to the top of the list as Canada's most polite city.
1: That's very interesting. So, I mean, they're thrilled to to know that they are the most polite city in Canada. Vaughan, on the other hand, also within the boundaries of York region, is the rudest city in Canada. So tell me how it managed to be at the top of that nasty list.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, diplomatically speaking, I'm sure there are lots of perfectly well-behaved people in Vaughan. But some of the behaviours that Vaughan ranked the worst for... It was actually related to driving behaviours. So, for example, Vaughan scored very high for not waving thank you when someone lets them merge into the traffic or not slowing down when driving near pedestrians. Now, as I said, we're not trying to say that Vaughan's residents are downright rude. It is a comparison. Perhaps within this survey, their behaviour may come across as little bit more brash and perhaps less respectful to other residents than the behaviour of residents of other cities.
1: And I noticed that, let's see, one, two, three, four, several, probably what, four or five Ontario, this is our province, Ontario cities were on the, the list of the top 10 rudest. So what does that tell you about Ontario as a province?
10: Oh, I really would not like to answer this question given that the radio station we're on right now. I mean, I think you can say that Ontario is one of the most populous regions in Canada, do correct me if I'm wrong. So it kind of responds it follows that many of the respondents of these surveys would reside in cities of this area. And perhaps there's a lot of commuting, a lot of driving where people allow themselves to be overcome by the speed of light, the speed of life, sorry, the speed of life. I mean, perhaps that could be one of the reasons as well. But I mean, also, for example, with Markham, like, we do see that it's a very diverse community, and so perhaps also the very backgrounds of residents may contribute to them being a little bit more tolerable, a little bit more polite, perhaps they're more open to understanding other people's behaviour as well. It's, it's a good question, and I think what's really fascinating, especially for us, is since we've published the study, we have actually seen some of our readers take to Twitter and Instagram and mentioning the gentle and courteous manner of Markham residents so clearly visitors and people living in the city are also noticing that polite nature. We haven't heard so much from Born residents perhaps maybe maybe we need to give them a little bit of time to process this but I just think it's interesting as it provokes a discussion. I manners is always as, as I said before it's it's so much of it is unspoken and perhaps from culture to culture, it does differ. So it's very curious for us to see that two cities so closely in terms of um, location have such different results.
1: What I also find interesting is Canada worldwide has this reputation for being almost overly polite. And yet within our borders, again, as we mentioned, York region, we've got the rudest city in the country, it's just, it just sort of flies in the face of, of our reputation.
10: Well, yes, but also again, we are talking about a small number of, of residents interviewed only 1,500. And so I think it, you can't necessarily say this is representative of absolutely everyone, but yes, I agree. It's, it's very, very interesting to see how those residents and how they behave on a daily basis.
1: (laughs) So let's talk about what Vaughan and Markham residents can take from this survey. What what are they walking away with?
10: So um, from my point of view I think it serves a little bit of as a reminder to everyone to be aware of how other people might perceive our behavior I mean, quite often we can get lost in our own world and forget how we're impacting others. I mean, I too am guilty of getting very absorbed in my phone as I'm walking along the street and perhaps accidentally bumping into someone or walking a little bit too fast. So I think it's, the lesson really is think about the other, think about other people, think about how your behavior is impacting other people. And if in doubt, take the polite road. People are always going to be incredibly appreciative of that. You
1: know, it's interesting. You are in Barcelona. I believe that you travel now that travel restrictions have been lifted. We've got COVID in the rearview mirror. Based on the survey results, would you want to visit Vaughn? <laughs>
10: I mean, I am a very curious and (laughs) open-minded traveller, so I would love to go to Vaughan and perhaps just to really put my mind at rest and see whether they really do have so many of these these, um, rather less polite driving habits. As you said, I live in Barcelona. I drive Spanish people, tend to have a little bit of a reputation for not being the most polite drivers as well. So perhaps I would go over to Canada and be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> um, and also on, on the stereotype of Canada being incredibly polite, I actually have been to Calgary a few times and I can say that that is definitely the case of the Calgarians. I love that. So I look forward to coming to Toronto and and sort of checking out everybody else's.
1: Absolutely. And we are the, the area above Toronto. It's all part of the greater Toronto area, York region. And what would be your expectations should you visit Markham?
10: Well, in Markham, I would obviously be expected to be welcomed with open arms, (laughs) having given them such a wonderful (laughs) review on my survey. And I think I would expect to see all of those examples of great behaviour. So people being extremely polite, people looking around, people bearing in mind the beha- well, bearing in mind the situations of others and really making an effort to respect everyone else is around them. I would expect everyone to let me through the traffic. <laughs> Maybe that might not be the case, to slow down as they if they're coming near me towards pedestrians and certainly to stop at any pedestrian crossing. But again, I think overall like I would just like to really emphasize like this is a comparison as well. So I would also hope that Vaughan will take this as a little bit Bit of a challenge and say right what can we do to up our scores for the next survey well
1: done sylvia Johnson, looking forward to the next survey head of methodology with preply thanks a lot for joining us it was been it's been enlightening and and exciting and very interesting and I love the juicy details thank you Sylvia
10: thank you so much for having me on the program and as you said before I look forward to visiting both cities oh yes <laughs> If you missed any part of the feed,
1: please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.